Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is uh, January the 18th in California. It's a warm day. Spring is in the air, early spring. And for many of us, I would include myself, uh, the spring is, of course, associated with uh, the political events uh, coming this week. Joe Biden is about to become president. He's going to roll out dozens of executive orders, apparently, in the first 10 days of his office. And these in particular are going to focus on, in many ways, America rejoining the world. He's going to rescind Trump's travel ban, uh, rejoin the Paris climate um, change accord, and so on and so forth. The New Yorker are representing the image in this sense. So uh, in, in good American, at least Hollywood fashion, the story seems to have had a happy ending. But of course, the idea of rejoining the world is not um, a narrative which is true around the world. Uh, uh, on, on January um, 1st, Brexit happened and Britain, rather than rejoining the, the world, left it. Uh, lots of stories still on this about Brexiteers waking up to the nightmare, the damage they've done. One piece that really caught my eye uh, on January 1 was a, a very strong uh, op-ed written in the New York Times by the Paris-based journalist Peter Gumbel. Britain has lost itself. Um, Brian, uh, I'm going to call you Brian because you're not Brian. You're Peter. Peter Gumbel. Uh, Brian Gumbel is a is a well-known American uh, journalist. Peter Gumbel is a well-known British journalist. Peter, Britain has lost itself from January one. What does that mean? What did you mean in this very strong op-ed? Well, the Brexit debacle, and it really is a debacle, um, has essentially ended. 50 years of ever-growing integration between Britain and its most important partners, uh, and its closest partners, Europe. Um, and uh, it's lost itself because, uh, for several reasons. First of all, it's ending a, a very important relationship. But secondly, it's ending a very important relationship under very strange conditions. The whole Brexit debate was, was about political manipulation, uh, about blatant lies about promises that would never get to be kept, about populism, uh, in a way, almost Trumpian populism um, for political ends and, and, and even for financial ends. Um, and what has got lost in here is the soul of Britain and the, the soul of England, the soul of Britain, which is a country that I grew up in and I love, um, and yet which has, in my mind, betrayed its very essence. Uh, this is a country of understatement, of pragmatism, which has become strident and ideological. Um, it's a country with humor, which still is there, but the humor has got much darker. And above all, it's a country which is now 
completely divided and polarized in a way that actually the United States is too. Um, and unlike the United States, which can vote in a new president, Brexit is here to stay. Uh, Peter, you have turned um, the narrative or your narrative of, of Brexit into a book. Uh, the op-ed was taken from the book, Citizens of Everywhere, Searching for Identity in the Age of Brexit. Um, it's a book which uh, is about your family. Uh, I'm quoting from the book on a sunny Tuesday morning in September 2019. My elder daughter and I walked into the German consulate in Paris with our British passports and re-emerged 15 minutes later as German citizens, this radical transformation. History has come full circle. How has history come full circle in your life and in the narrative of this book, Peter? Well, my grandparents and my parents were both, were all born in Germany. They were German citizens. Uh, and my grandparents in particular were uh, relatively affluent pillars of the local communities in which they lived uh, until the Nazis came along in 1933. Uh, and then uh, they were persecuted and only just managed to get out of Germany uh, in 1939 at the last minute. And they fled to England, the country that they saw as a beacon of hope and safety uh, and a, a place of tolerance. Uh, they were lucky to get out at the last minute, um, and on their way out, they were stripped of their German citizenship by Nazi decrees and arrived in England stateless and lived in England during the war as essentially stateless refugees. And then in 1946, when the war was over, they uh, received British nationality. They were naturalized as Brits, and they then dedicated the rest of their lives to their new country, their adopted homeland, which they loved and they cherished. Um, and so for me to go and ask for and apply for German citizenship uh, really was about closing a cycle of history, uh, which was something I would never have thought of until Brexit happened. Uh, but when it did happen, uh, I was able to apply for German citizenship because my grandparents and my parents were stripped of theirs because there's an article in the in the West German Constitution from 1949, which is now the German Constitution for everybody, uh, which says that uh, if you are the descendant of people who were stripped of their nationality, then you are eligible to apply for it to be reinstated. So I and my family did that. Uh, Peter, here, here is a, a wonderful photo you've generously lent us of your of your pre-war family, I think taken in 1934, of your grandparents, your mother, your aunt and uncle, dad aunt, and, and, and uh, great-grandmother. Um, it's a wonderful looking family. And the story of the family is in some ways very uplifting, very successful family. But one of the things that struck me about your book is they didn't bring everything with them, did they, to Britain? This was a reinvented family rewriting their narrative, uh, a narrative which was rather uncomfortable and that you only really discovered as a teenager. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they uh, essentially uh, were challenged in an existential way in their identity. They thought and believed they were German, they were proud to be German, uh, the Nazis came along and they were you know, no longer German and only managed to get out just in time. Uh, my parents, then the next generation, uh, wanted to be English, wanted to assimilate, wanted to integrate, 
and to be accepted in their new country, which they they really loved. And so we grew up as uh, as children uh, thinking that we were really very British, but knowing that somehow something was not quite right. Uh, we were British, but we had a family history. And perhaps to protect us, or perhaps because the trauma they'd been through was so intense that they couldn't talk about it, we grew up with many taboos about what had happened in the past and who we really were. And so in some ways, this search uh, for a new identity, for a new nationality that was triggered by Brexit uh, is something which has helped me and also I think my brothers and sisters to come to terms with who we really are and uh, how we are both British and German. Uh, and in that way, by having two passports, which I now have, um, I am able to say, that I am British and European. So I'm, I'm British by birth, I'm British by conviction and by upbringing and by manners, but I'm also very pro-European and I have a, a European heritage and a European conviction. So I now have two passports that actually reflect who I am. The book opens with a wonderfully striking first sentence. Uh, all four of my grandparents were proud German citizens until the Nazis decreed they were not German at all, but members of an inferior race that needed to be eradicated. Um, you don't say in that first sentence, of course, that your grandparents were Jewish. And you also suggest in the book that there was an element of anti-Semitism in your middle or upper middle class household in Germany. Um, are you regretful that you you never experienced Jewishness growing up, given that you were taken to church and your your parents and your grandparents seemed to deny the fact of any Jewishness in your family? They almost did. I'm not suggesting, of course, that they were in any way racist, but they did the work of the Nazis. I think that's that's too strong. I think what, what is interesting is that uh, the whole religion question was by far the biggest taboo for us growing up. We could tell that our parents uh, were not native Brits. They had a slight accent. We ate food that wasn't exactly what the, uh, the, the parents of our friends would make. Um, but the Jewish part was completely suppressed. And actually, uh, the historical reason for it is something that I only discovered when I started digging into my, uh, my parents' and grandparents' papers after I decided to apply for German citizenship because I needed to have all sorts of documentary evidence. And I discovered then that actually my grandmother on my, on my mother's side, the, 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 way, the lady you saw in the photograph just now, um, that she would actually converted to Christianity in 1910. Um, and her husband had then converted uh, to in 1923. So this was, you know, 20 and, and, and 10 years before the Nazis came. And at the time, uh, there's quite a lot of uh, interesting scientific and, and academic research that shows that many well-established German Jewish families, as part of their whole assimilation to German society and being accepted in German society, actually did convert and left behind their Jewish religion. So 
at the same time uh, as as you know leaving it behind they were also not seen by the nazis as being christian they were seen as jews and one of the letters i found which is one of the more chilling letters i found in the in the uh, in the documentation is a letter from the local church synod to my grandparents in 1938 in december 38 essentially kicking them out of the church because they weren't proper christians so there is a history there that is very painful about their religious identity. Um, and rather than try and communicate that to us, it was completely covered in silence when we were growing up. And we grew up as you know, members of the Church of England. Uh, I mean, were my parents uh, convinced uh, and devout Anglicans? Hard to tell. Um, I think they believed in something. But uh, we grew up in that in that tradition, and it was also very much it was the Church of England, so it was part of the assimilation attempts in in England. So I don't think it's right to say that uh, there was sort of anti-Semitism, but there was a sense of the importance of fitting in and shedding the Jewish roots was a part of that when they were in Germany, and then not talking about it when they're in England was just deliver, as they say in France. Uh, your your personal history, in, in a funny way, uh, echoes that of uh, Christopher Hitchens, who discovered his Jewishness when he was growing up. What's interesting about the quote and this idea of anti-Semitism and Jews not sort of embracing their identity was the idea that you couldn't have identity and be global at the same time, which is something that, of course, is still a, a really interesting issue. It seems like the the, the, the Brexit... Uh, debate and the, what you would probably call a debacle uh, really triggered a lot of inner feelings. You say that uh, at the time, Prime Minister Theresa May's disparagement of citizens of nowhere perfectly captured the underlying nastiness of Brexit. What's so wrong with uh, Peter going after citizens of nowhere? Why did that trigger a degree of anger and resentment on your part? Well, the, the the quote was 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 made by Theresa May at a Conservative Party conference after the Brexit vote, um, and she said that uh, essentially you can't be a citizen of the world and be British at the same time. Uh, and I think this again, this is reflects my decision to to find another nationality because uh, I was British and I still am British, but I also felt very European, and so. Essentially, what she was taking aim at were, you know, people who she thought uh, or were accused of being these sort of global elites who didn't really belong anywhere and had nobody's interests at heart except their own. Um, I took a very strong issue with that because, first of all, uh, I am British and have always felt British. Um, and yet, at the same time, I, there's more to me than just being British. Uh, I, I, I have lived and worked in many countries around the world and feel very strong attachment to, to, to Europe as a whole. Uh, and secondly, there was a very strong echo, echo in the citizens of nowhere of the worst of Nazi propaganda uh, when um, you had these sort of cliches and stereotypes, hideous stereotypes of the wandering Jew who would have no affiliation and just be out there for their own uh, for their own gain and be uh, preying on the societies where they were they happened to be. So there's a, there's a very strong Nazi association right there, and that I felt was absolutely revolting, frankly. And so, um, but even without that association, uh, I know many other 
Brits, who, particularly those who live outside Britain and who live in Europe, who also feel extremely aggrieved by this idea that they are citizens of nowhere, uh, because uh, essentially they, you know, they, it, it, it really challenges their identity, who they are and where they belong. And I think just to, to finish this idea, that one of the one of the thoughts that came to me um, as a result of the, the reflection on this whole idea of citizens of nowhere or citizens of everywhere. Uh, is that citizenship more and more is not an issue of geography. It's becoming more and more an issue of values because you can have, we've seen this in the United States, you know, uh, Joe Biden and others saying, this is not who we are. Well, actually, um, you know, yes, uh, it is uh, who some Americans are, that the, the kind of the pro-Trump uh, and, and Brexit, uh, again, it's uh, there is a very big divide, and this division is part of the reality. So, what I think is important is to say that geography no longer determines really who you are. It's much more what you are, what the values you are, and what the values you embody are, and that's what you share, and that's the citizenship that I think is important in this age. It's it's a fascinating issue, Peter. This one of geography just talk very briefly about the United States, you draw the comparison with what's happening here and Brexit, of course, the images uh, from a week or two ago of men with beards walking around with Cap Auschwitz sweatshirts and six million wasn't enough t-shirts underlines your point and the maybe not anti-Jewish, but certainly deeply racist imagery from the from from the events in dc i think reiterate your point i i want to though i want to talk more about geography because we had a, a wonderful travel writer tom zollner on on the show a few weeks ago and he he has this and i, and I keep on repeating this and for regular viewers of the show they're probably sick of this quote but I, i'm not he he wrote the american concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift Places less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. Now, Peter, you and I are part of the, the global elite, some people might call, or the, the coastal elite or globalized class, who have indeed been able to liberate ourselves of geography. But not everyone can do that. You. You refer in your book to the work of David Goodhart, who, who came up with the terms of everywheres and somewheres. He was on the show a few weeks ago, too. He's an old friend. What about the somewheres, Peter? What about the people who are, for better or worse, imprisoned and can't travel like us, can't go to Paris, can't pick up German citizenship? <laughs> Well, on that latter point, you know, clearly I am very privileged in that uh, I have been able to get another passport and that is exceptional and I acknowledge that. Uh, at the same time, one of the great changes in my lifetime, in our lifetime, has been the extraordinary increase in the mobility, the, you know, the low-cost travel possibilities to go anywhere at any time um, are fantastic and have actually opened the world to to many people who you know wouldn't otherwise have been able to to travel um and if you look at the you know the easy jets and the ryanairs that, that fly from from britain all over europe to taking people to their their vacations or uh, low-cost travel across the atlantic as well um so there has been a huge rise in mobility and that's really important there's also been a rise of mobility within europe uh, for people able to 
move uh, to, for, for work. And in the United States, actually, it's gone the other way, that the mobility has been going down, but in, in Europe, it's been going up. I think that there's a bigger point here than just travel. And that is that we are living in an age with the internet, which has essentially transcended borders, transcended national borders. So national identity itself uh, is only one identity among others. I mean, if you think about it, when you go online, when you uh, go into your Facebook groups, you are very often with people who are in completely different places and you create a new community, a digital community, which is not geographical. Um, and so even if you have no money and you cannot travel and you are completely stuck, you have the ability now through social media, through the internet, to transcend borders, to to essentially transcend geography. And I think that's that's incredibly important. And I think it's going to change who we are uh, more and more, because if your Facebook and your Twitter ID and your password become as important as your passport, then uh, very much there's this, uh, an argument to be made that the geography is, we're, you know, we're living in a post-geographical world. I'm not sure I buy this, Peter. Look at the the map of the Brexit vote. The, the Brexit vote was, what, 2016 or 17, three, uh, two 16. or three 16 so four years ago facebook and twitter and all the rest of social media was just as hot then as it is now and look at, at these stats apart from london the rest of britain or the rest of the of england at least voted to leave europe these people are all online so what's changed well uh, the other part of online of course is uh that uh, you are very susceptible to be manipulated by political operators. I mean, we've seen this more and more over the last years. Uh, Brexit was an absolute uh, classic example of uh, very smart uh, social media strategies by the, uh, the, 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 the pro-Brexit camp and not very sophisticated and not very clever uh, arguments by the, the Remain camp. Um, and so it, only people who really... Uh, were convinced of the importance uh, of staying in Europe, who understood the uh, the, the benefits that to be had, uh, tended to vote uh, in favour. So I think you're right. I mean, clearly, uh, when I talk about a post-geography world, you know, there are some caveats there. Uh, and the other thing you have to remember as well is uh, you need to map how people voted, not only in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States in the latest election, with how are the economics of the regions in which they are living. Um, and there's a, there's a clear correlation between economic development, education levels, and voting patterns. And we've seen that on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, definitely from that point of view, it's, it's uh, geography does still matter. However- Geography uh, does indeed matter, for better or worse. We've, we've had a lot of shows about people who have been not liberated like you and I from, uh, from, from, from from working class, or I don't even know if that's the right word, uh, provincial, small town America is in, in, in deep crisis. Peter, I want to take advantage of your of your global identity. Not only are you uh, an Englishman uh, in at heart, at least you still you still use Marmite and uh, enjoy Monty Python, but you've lived in France most of your adult life. You're very distinguished journalist. You've written four books about French elites, French education, French vertigo. I wrote a book called Digital Vertigo, so that we have in common. 
What's the situation very briefly in France, Peter? Because uh, we don't hear much anymore about Marine Le Pen. We don't have the comparisons with Trump. I've always thought that Ivanka Trump is the next Marine Le Pen. Uh, is this conflict between the somewheres and everywheres as, as sharp as it is in the UK and the US in France? Uh, it's, uh, it is definitely present, uh, but it is not as sharp. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, and uh, you know the, the kind of the strong populism that she represents, the very strong anti-immigrant uh, strain that she represents, is is you know a, a political force in France. But what has happened in France uh, in the last election was that uh, you had a essentially a centrist who came from nowhere, who came and blew up left and right. So you had a third party candidate in the United States who came and uh, the Democrats and the Republicans just sort of collapsed uh, at the arrival of this person. Um, and that includes also Marine Le Pen, who has taken, uh, you know, took a big beating and uh, has been relatively quiet. Um, I think in some ways Brexit is actually uh, bad for her because it's gone so badly, it's been so complicated, it's continuing to be complicated economically. So you can't run around and use the same sort of rhetoric that was used in Britain because uh, people will point to the Brits and say, hey, you know, it's not so great what they did. Look how it's playing out. But France is not a very happy place. Um, they've they enjoy before, their misery, don't they? The French, they, they pride yeah. themselves on being miserable. They wouldn't be yeah, friends. Of course. Well, that's that's true. And and I but it's it's not a happy place in the sense that um, there was already a, a, a fairly high level of discontent before the pandemic. Uh, and you had these yellow vest protests, uh, people just taking to the streets, and uh, it wasn't and it still isn't completely clear what they want, but it's just reflecting a, a, a kind of a general discontent. And this is not a, about uh, immigration. Um, or about poverty. This is more about uh, people who are lower middle class or middle class essentially saying stagnation, uh, stop taxing us so heavily, uh, let us live, let us breathe better. Um, and uh, to which the government has no effective response. So that's going to be an ongoing saga. There's an election, not this year, but then next year. And I'm sure that we'll, you know, you'll be hearing much more about uh, about France in the United States in the next 18 months. Well, Peter, I hope you're going to move back to your, uh, I wouldn't say your country of birth, but your your country now of identity, Germany. Um, you you write about these full circles in Citizens of Everywhere. The paradoxes of history are very personal for you, but they're also broader. I think you imply in the book. Um, pre at least First World War, many people saw Germany as the heart of culture and civilization. And you suggest in your book that we're returning to that. I at least consider uh, Angela Merkel to be the most enlightened and liberal of liberal with a small L of, uh, of politicians in the world today. Here we have a headline of Merkel attacking Twitter over the Trump ban, even though she was anything but a, a Trump fan. Is Germany now the place that America used to be the beacon of hope for liberals, for people who believe in individual freedom and, 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 and balancing, calibrating the power of the state with individual freedom? Uh, I mean, I think it's quite shocking uh, for quite a lot of people when I say this, but, uh, but yes, um, in many ways, Germany has gone through an extraordinary period uh, after the war of 
coming to terms with what happened and, and this descent into barbarism. Um, and uh, there's a, a, you know, a genuine uh, amount of, of remorse uh, and atonement that's taken place and continues to take place. Uh, and also three generations have passed. And if you look at Merkel, look at the way that she opened the doors to two million refugees uh, in 2000, uh, already in 15 and 16, 17, 18, uh, and has actually managed very, the Germans have very well integrated many of them who came and they've got jobs and or they, at least they had jobs before COVID. Uh, and if you look at the way that Merkel herself stood up to Trump and was calling him out on values and, uh, and as you say now, even on Twitter saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, free speech is important. Uh, so, in that sense, Germany has become uh, a very interesting place. Whether it's a model um, is hard to say because so many people still associate it with the Nazis and those terrible years of the Third Reich. Uh, but the values there are, you know, currently are are very strong ones. And of course, uh, there is, uh, you know, there's a, there's an extremist element in Germany. There's a there's a political party in the parliament with some seats who are. Uh, anti-immigrant and intolerant, but they are very much a minority, and uh, there's there's much more tolerance uh, in Germany uh, than I would say in Britain. And in fact, one of the chapters in my book is about the role reversal in some ways between the two countries. Uh, that Germany, you know, as the beacon of hope for refugees today, in the same way that England was the beacon of hope for for my grandparents. Yeah, I wish I could go to Germany. They won't have me. Um... Peter, finally, uh, I'm doing a series this year in my How to Fix Democracy show about citizenship. We're partnering with a Canadian group. Uh, outside of Europe, are there countries which have liberated the notion of citizenship from ethnicity and soil? The Canadians, perhaps, the Australians. Is that really what we need to think about citizenship in, in, in a globalized 21st century? of countries that are able to embrace the notion of citizenship whilst at the same time rejecting ethnicity, race, religion? It's, it's very hard. I think, uh, I mean, Canada clearly uh, is, is, a, is a, a beacon of tolerance. I think in general, Europe uh, is leading the way. I mean, this idea of having full sovereignty, uh, of being a community, uh, of uh, accepting differences and, and different cultures, different languages, and trying to find common ground. I think in many ways that's a, that, that is an example and a, and a, uh, a shining one in, in, in some places, not everywhere, unfortunately, but it's, it's an experiment that's been going on for 50 years and will continue to go on. Um, so has anybody else got it right? Ah. Hard to tell. I mean, Australia, you mentioned, is a fantastic, interesting country. I was there uh, a year ago before the pandemic, and it's very interesting to see, you know, how they have become much more multicultural. At the same time, they still have very rigid barriers to, uh, especially to illegal immigrants, and and, and treat them pretty badly. Um, and so, uh, nowhere is it has got it completely right. But I think more and more, this is going to be the the challenge of our societies uh, in the future. I think that uh, finding places that have the right values, uh, that see citizenship as being something that is inclusive, uh, is going to be uh, crucially important. And, and the other part, of course, is the economic part. 
that uh, you can have societies who are balanced and at peace with you know with themselves really only if you have economic well-being that's widely shared I couldn't agree more, Peter, and I, I think your book, um, Citizens of Everywhere, Searching for Identity in the Age of Brexit, addresses this question of, of how we can be citizens without falling back on hatred or exclusion. It's, it's, it's a very short book and, and a really nice read, so uh, everyone should read that. You're stuck, if that's the right word, Peter, in your, pa in, I was going to say, palace, uh, your your Paris apartment, it looks rather palatial. Uh, in early 2021, we're all still stuck at home, you in France, me in California. What else should people be reading to make sense of these strange times, Peter? Uh, well, there are two books that I would recommend. One of them is one you actually referred to uh, in the in the old question. Um, it's an old book by, by Stefan Zweig, a, a, a wonderful writer who tragically committed suicide in Brazil in 1942. Um, and it's called uh, The World of Yesterday. Uh, and it's about his birth and upbringing in Imperial Vienna at the end of the 19th century when he thought that, and everybody there seemed to think that progress was inevitable, technological progress was on the cards, everything was open, travel was, was getting freer, people were going to live better lives, you know, medicine was making fantastic progress. And then uh, before you knew it, uh, the place had descended first into the, 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 the disaster of the First World War, the collapse of empire, and then into the Second World War and the Holocaust. And uh, it, it was this extraordinarily dangerous and horrific and very fast collapse from one extreme to the other. So it's not a, an uplifting book, but it's a very instructive book, an interesting book. Um, the second book I would recommend is, a, is actually a contemporary book, which uh, I liked very, very much. Um, it's, um, it's about uh, Ireland and it's, uh, it's a book called Milkman uh, by Anna Burns. And it came out a couple of years ago and actually won the Booker Prize, the prestigious English uh, literary prize. And it's about uh, a young girl in an extremely claustrophobic community in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's it's the opposite of Stefan Zweig, if you like, but in many ways it's similar. It's about values and community and society and how you navigate these really complicated situations that can arise in a in a place where there's very high tension and strife. So both of them thoroughly recommended for these days where there's a lot of relevance to what's going on in our world today. Great, great suggestions, Peter. I want to thank you. I want to wish you a very happy and healthy and global new year. And we will see you again on this show to talk about your view, your highly civilized view from Europe. And perhaps next time you can report from your new home, Germany. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio.
See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.